you know, there are some opportunities coming through your life uh, that you might regret if you didn't uh, grasp them or, or, or take them. And uh, I think this was one of them. Ståle Hansen is the CEO and president of Skuld. Skuld is a world-leading marine insurer with around 300 employees, over 30 different nationalities and with offices worldwide. In this episode, we learn how Ståle ended up in the maritime industry, how to manage risk the right way, and how he hopes Skuld can make a positive impact on pushing the industry towards zero emissions. This episode is brought to you by Nordshipping. Nordshipping is at the center of the oceans. This is where the maritime and ocean industries meet every two years from across the world to connect, collaborate and do deals to unlock new business opportunities. This is your arena for ocean solutions. See you at Nordshipping in Oslo, 6th to 9th of June 2023. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vorname or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vorname. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vorname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. First of all, Stolle, thank you so much for taking the time to join me for a conversation. Thank you for having me. If you go all the way back the memory lane, how early did you know that you wanted a career in business? Um, you know, I, I don't think I actually really knew that I was going into business. Um, when I started studying, I, I really didn't know what uh, direction I wanted to go in. And uh, I had heard quite a lot of good things about the Norwegian School of Economics in Bergen. Not necessarily because of the subject matters, but more the student life and uh, maybe the night life. Uh, so uh, actually, that was what uh, drew me to to Bergen, because I, I'm from Trondheim in, uh, in Norway, uh, which also is a big student uh, city. But I, I sort of wanted to go somewhere else and, and study and uh, yeah, move away from the parents and all that. Um, so, th- so that actually was maybe the, the start of interest for, for business when I started studying in, in Bergen and, and started learning more about what, what it's all about. Maybe therefore it was like a, a natural segue over to working at Accenture at the start because you get like a broad exposure to a lot of different industries. It seems like a, a good route to take if you want to explore different options. Was that also the case at, at your end? Does that sound like a great starting place? Yeah, I think you're right, uh, Christopher. Uh, you know, um, uh, one of the benefits I saw by, by studying uh, in, in uh, Bergen at the uh, Norwegian uh, School of Economics was that you can go quite broadly out after and, and uh, search for, for different type of jobs. Um, and since I was a, bit, a little bit uncertain what direction I wanted to go in, uh, to start in a consultant firm is really a good way to sort of get yourself uh, going. Uh, you know, you start with the other young people. They have a fantastic introduction pro- program. Um, they build culture from day one. Uh, and um, I really learned a lot of things of say self-management and how to drive projects uh, during my years in uh, in Accenture. 
And at that time, when did school sort of come up on your radar that you could join them as a business controller? Was that also a coincidence or something you, you had explored? I sound probably very unplanned now, but it, it was actually <laughs> a coincidence that as well, because uh, um, after a few years in Accenture, I, I really wanted to maybe focus more on one business uh, because in in, uh, in Accenture, you are jumping from project to project. And uh, to be fair, it was, was quite a lot of work, uh, not necessarily uh, what I wanted to do rest of my, my career. Uh, to to sort of um, just uh, jump from one uh, one thing to the other. Uh, having that said, it was a great time in in Accenture. Uh, but I really wanted to deep dive into to one company, and by coincidence, actually, I saw an ad in a, a Norwegian paper uh, searching for a business controller in Skuld. And uh, in Accenture, I, I worked for many businesses, but actually not insurance. So again, a little bit uh, sort of entering into something new that you really don't uh, know, but you want to learn. And, uh, and that uh, sort of kickstarted the interest on, on insurance and, and uh, shipping. And what was the first impression when you got into the building and saw how, you know, there is a lot of history involved in these types of companies. I mean, your history is like over 100 years already. So what was the first impression when you entered this business and the shipping industry and everything around it? Uh, I must admit, I was a little bit shocked <laughs> because you, you, I came from, you know, a very forward-leaning modern uh, consultant firm uh, with many young people, people and... Um, I have been now in school uh, for over 20 years, and uh, a lot has happened uh, in school over these years. Uh, but when I came into school, it was a bit old-fashioned still. And, you know, you come into this uh, dark meeting room with a lot of paintings uh, on the wall. Uh, you have crystal glasses with water. Um, so it, it was a little bit culture shock to begin with, I must admit. But then, as I said, you know, a lot has happened after that. I found it interesting to to see your career trajectory in school that you, you started as a controller, then you started working on the risk side, and then the opportunity arised in becoming the CFO. Was that also uh, a surprise that it went pretty fast to get up into a very um, top position? Or, or was it also, you know... Uh, the right way when you were inside the company or did those opportunities come a bit as a surprise as well um that it came that early i think was uh, a surprise to me uh and I, I think that's why i've been staying in in school for so many years is that there, there have always been new opportunities arising uh so i worked closely with the the former cfo and uh, he decided to move, move on um he uh, got a, a job in a offshore uh, company um and then the 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 previous or the the ceo at that time uh, basically came and asked me if i was willing to to run for it and obviously they did a, a search process as well um and I decided, well, I felt maybe it was a bit early, but uh, I, I, I felt this is a chance you can't say no to, basically. So um, so I just jumped into it. 
Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question. Like, when do you know if it's the right opportunity at the right time? Because usually it's hard to have the perfect timing all the time. So is it just a judgment based on, okay, here the upside is so big that I sort of have to grab this opportunity? Is it that what it comes comes down to a lot? Um, I, I think so. I, th I think, um, you know, there are some opportunities coming through your life. Uh, that you might regret if you didn't uh, grasp them or, or, or take them. And uh, I think this was one of them. Uh, but having that said, I think the timing couldn't be worse than, uh, than what it was when I became the CFO. Um, I had just met my, my uh, wife. Uh, we were about to get our first uh, child uh, and the finance crisis broke out. So this was in uh, late 2007, early 2008. Um, and being a young, uh, a bit uh, inexperienced uh, CFO to sort of get the, the uh, responsibility for the whole uh, insurance uh, finance portfolio um, when all markets are crashing, that was quite a uh, tough start, I must admit. But I learned a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it sounds like a very explosive cocktail of events, but... Yeah, can you take us a bit back to maybe also paint the picture, maybe before we go into that sort of crisis, can we also just have an introduction to how this insurance companies work? How is it structured, et cetera, for people who are not familiar with the industry as all, at all? What are the, the sort of key components in this kind of business and sector? Yeah, uh, I probably couldn't speak for many hours on this, but I'll try to keep it very short. Uh, you know, um, uh, marine insurance is actually one of the oldest uh, insurance businesses in, in the world. Uh, and it started off by uh, ship owners that wanted to come together and share the risk. Uh, if something happened with one of their ships, they could actually then all uh, pay uh, in a pool. So they, they got covered uh, for much bigger amounts than what they would have been able to do on their own balance sheet. Um, so that was uh, how uh, the concept of mutual companies actually started, uh, where the ship owners, being the, our customer, also became a member of, uh, of Skuld, and uh, by that uh, have a share of, say, the capital in, in the company. Uh, a lot of things have happened uh, over the years since then. And today, you know, uh, it's far more regulated and uh, also commercially driven. Uh, so basically what you need to run an insurance company, it's a lot of capital. You need a strong balance sheet in order to take the risks you are uh, insuring. And then it's a big structure of uh, reinsurance that we buy as an insurance company uh, that enable us to basically cover unlimited, uh, you know, amounts of a cover uh, when th things really go wrong. How would you um, define the position of Norway versus maybe London, who has maybe the biggest pool of insurance? Like, what are how does that landscape look like? Has Norway a very good position in this industry, or is it also shared across other countries? Uh, the interesting thing is that. Uh, Norway is, is big on uh, all kinds of services around the ship uh, because we have a long history of ship owners in Norway. And also they moved out of Norway and they, they expanded and became uh, international companies. Um, but they, they required, you know, classification, insurance. 
So that's why uh, Norway is actually uh, one of the biggest uh, service providers to the uh, marine industry. And when it comes to the marine insurance, um, if you take the Norwegian insurance companies, we are probably covering around 35% of, uh, of the world market. Um, so we are a big player there. But we are, as I said, also uh, reliant on uh, uh, buying our own reinsurance from other insurance companies. And that is where uh, the London market is by far uh, the biggest market, uh, also through the Lloyd's uh, system. Um, but also um, the Norwegian, the two Norwegian uh, PNI clubs, as we call uh, ourselves, uh, for the liability insurance, uh, we are a member of something called International Group. Uh, and that is the 12 uh, clubs that also share risks uh, with each other through a pool. Uh, and uh, uh, coming back to you know the, the vast amounts that you could end up in in a big uh, catastrophe and, and casualty, uh, we all sort of need to share those risks in able to to cover um, the exposures. Um, so so it's a lot of collaboration between us. Uh, at the same time, we are competitors. It's fascinating. It's so complex, and you're also forced to have this collaboration going on, right? So if you just look at yourself, I guess one big part of the business model is, you know, the how good you are in calculating the risk and also what are you doing with, with the liquidity you have available. If you can just, in a broad pencil, give us the, the insight into how the business model, model work and also how do you make sure that you are running this type of company as good as you possibly can because there are some pitfalls and some some um, risks you you will enter regardless uh, absolutely um i mean for us it's crucial to understand the risks uh, we are covering and uh, over the years you know we have coll collected a lot of data uh, on different type of claims what really can happen uh, and we have actuaries and we have analysts that can model for us expected claims based on the risk exposures that we uh, we are covering. Uh, and then based on that, you can also calculate what is the necessary insurance premium you need to charge for, for those uh, risks. And then obviously there's an element of luck and bad luck uh, every year. Uh, you never know when the big casualties uh, come. So in order to cover also what you really don't expect will happen, but can happen, uh, you need to build up sufficient capital on your balance sheet to, to cover this. Uh, so that, then you again model, you know, say worst type uh, or worst kind of scenarios, the one in a 200 year event. Uh, and this is really what the, the authorities, the, the fin finance regulators are looking at. Sort of how much capital have you built up uh, against how much risk exposure you take? And based on that, you run uh, an ongoing uh, business so, uh, that can cover for this volatility that you can see from year to year in, uh, in our industry. And then you also have like rating agencies, Standard & Poor, etc., monitoring our business. And they give you a rating so you can uh, check if your insurance company have an A rating or uh, you know, a lower rating. And based on that, you can judge yourself what uh, quality 
the the insurance you have uh, consists of. So if you go, if you if we go by one event, you know maybe the most recent one and probably a big one was you know the Russian invasion on Ukraine. What does that set part in your business? Because of course there's a lot of moving parts here, and you have to take action. And I guess that is sort of a, a volatile event that has consequences in your operation. Yeah, uh, it, it had many consequences for us. Um, you know, shipping is global, and uh, we. Well, not we, but the ship owners, they are, are transporting cargo around the world. Um, and uh, when uh, the war broke out in Ukraine, a lot of sanctions were imposed on Russia. Uh, and this is really something that uh, we had to then um, assess and, and see how does the sanctions on Russia affect our portfolio. And before the war started, we, we were quite big in, in Russia as well with, with the Russian ship owners. So the first thing we had to do was to actually to then uh, uh, discontinue and uh, and take out the, the, the Russian part of our insurance portfolio. Um, and then it was all the questions from other ship owners from other countries, uh, what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do based on, on the sanction regime. Um, but maybe the most dramatic part was uh, with the ships that got stuck outside uh, Ukraine and in, in Ukrainian ports. Basically ended up being in a war zone and were not allowed to, to sail. Then it's the war insurance that triggers. Um, and we also offer that. But the most important uh, element at that uh, time was then to, to secure the crew uh, on, uh, on the ships. So make sure that the crew could leave the ship and, and go back home, uh, which not was not very easy uh, at all time. Uh, and there are many involved in, in s such operations. Don't do everything ourselves. But obviously, as an insurer, you are involved in, and you are paying for, for a lot of it. But then you still have the ship being stuck, uh, say, in a Ukrainian port. And after 12 months, uh, the, the ship owner can actually declare uh, what we call a constructive total loss on that ship. Basically saying that, okay, I want to get my insurance payment for the value of that ship, and I, I, I can leave the ship there, and I don't own it anymore. And basically then the insurance company take over the, the asset, the ship. Uh, so in the, in the most extreme uh, scenarios here, we have uh, actually been <laughs> becoming a ship owner for a very limited period of time before we have been able to to sell the ship again um, to to recover some of the, the the value that we had to pay to the ship owner um, so as you can hear it's a lot of things happening when when such a dramatic situation uh, occur and it's is it also a point then that you can be prepared as you said you have to you know expect you know volatile scenarios but even though if you are prepared there's still a lot of work to be done once events occur you can't plan for everything, I guess, regardless how good you are. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, but we learn uh, along the way. And uh, I think that's why I find this industry so uh, so fascinating, because it, it's really a people business where you need you need experienced people. And we, we also need young people coming in with new influences, new ideas. Uh, but 
but it's a lot about knowledge and, and knowing how to handle these complicated matters. So this is not easily done by, you know, an automated website and just uh, sort of paying out the claims. It's a lot of complicated cases that our claims handlers are, are dealing with, but that makes it uh, interesting. Yeah, definitely. So maybe, you know, these examples are good, you know, uh, part of one side of the equation in, in an insurance business. And I guess there's also another side of the equation is what you do with the liquidity you have available and the big balance sheet in terms of how you're going to get an interest on that amount as well. And, you know, in the financial markets, there's been uh, some uh, rough sea and waters where it's been hard to get the, the return back. So can you explain that aspect as well, which I guess is a huge part of, of your operation as well? That That's true. Um, you, you basically have two uh, two income streams in uh, in an insurance company. You have your core business, the insurance premiums, and you pay out claims. But hopefully, you have a margin uh, left on on the bottom line. And then, based on all the capital you need in order to insure the risks you take, uh, you you have uh, a balance sheet, and you try to invest that best way possible to get a return on that as well. Um, and if you have a good return there, you can also lower, lower your insurance premiums. So uh, it goes a little bit hand in hand. In hand. But uh, uh, when it comes to the, the balance sheet, it's quite restricted how much risk we can take on our finance uh, or investment portfolios. Uh, so you, you, you can have a, a smaller share in equity, but basically a lot of insurance companies are heavily invested in bonds and government bonds uh, in order to, uh, to reduce the volatility and the risk you take on your, your investment portfolio. So we, yeah, we need expertise on, on that side as well. So you have like lawyers and experienced seafarers dealing with the claim side, but then we also have finance people dealing with the... Uh, the investment side. But I guess it also has been a strange couple of years regarding to the bonds as well, given the bond market situation as well. It's been been a hard place to be, as probably not been used to that, but... No, it's it's a little bit, uh, say, uh, double negative effect, uh, especially last year, uh, with both the equity markets dropping, but also the bonds, due to the increasing interest rates, you, you get a lower value on your bonds. And that... Uh, that has caused sort of a, a negative effect on both sides. So it ha has been really hard to uh, to get a positive return at least uh, last year. Uh, but again, then it's coming back to how you you mitigate, uh, say, the volatility, uh, how you diversify your your investment portfolio, and you know it's unrealized losses you have on your balance sheet. You you haven't really taken the losses uh, out. So at some point, they should come up again as well. So it is to manage that volatility, which is important. You run a company now with around 300 employees, over 30 different nationalities. How is it to be the CEO of you know such an international organization? How does that work in practice? Do you travel a lot all the time or trying to engage in a lot of Zoom meetings to keep everybody informed? Or how does it work to run such an international organization? Um, it's a good question. Uh, obviously, there will be some traveling and uh, you need to be uh, visible in, in person as well. But I think we learned a lot through the pandemic that you can do quite a lot on Zoom meetings, uh, Teams meetings, um, to, to, to sort of be close to all the offices uh, around the world. But 
uh, obviously with 11 offices around the, the world, we also delegate quite a lot of responsibility out. So it's not only me doing this. We are 300 people and they, they have a lot of independency and say authority to make uh, decisions and, and judgments uh, themselves. So really my main focus is, is to build a strong uh, and good uh, and positive company culture uh, because it, it's a lot about teamwork. And then coming back to where I started in, uh, in Accenture, there we also worked a lot uh, around teams uh, on projects. Uh, and it's the same here. You need different skills and if different expertise uh, to, to handle all the matters we, we, we do. Uh, so my, my main job is basically to be the, the oil in, in, in this uh, system, you know, and, and make sure that everything is working and that people are enjoying uh, working in school, uh, feel motivated and sort of really want to dedicate themselves to the tasks they are, are given. Definitely. If you look at your leadership philosophy, do you have any key principles that you try to bring out to the to the company? Um, it's coming a little bit back to my hobby. You know, I, I play the drums. Uh, I've been playing in uh, many different bands uh, over the years. Uh, don't have that much time to do it now as I did before. But I try to, uh, well, I, I maybe push the, the, the employees to listen to me uh, a few times when we have Christmas parties and, uh, and other, uh, other um, uh, gatherings. Uh, but uh, um, when you play in a band you, with different instruments, it is to find a, a way to play w well together, you know. And, and I think that philosophy and, or, or the way you teach a song when you are playing in a band and want it to sound as good as possible with all the instruments together, it's really uh, something I've taken on board also in my management style and, and trying to get people to, to work uh, well together. So um, if, if there's anything in sort of in my management uh, way or, or management style, it is to trust people and to give empowerment. Uh, and it's all about trust. Basically the industry we are driving is about trust. Uh, so, uh, so, so that is really what I'm focusing on, trust-based leadership. And also an interesting part, you know, being the CEO is that, of course, you're also responsible in making sure that you're able to recruit, you know, good people and also the next types of talents. And it seems to me from the outside that once people get into school, they, they, they tend to stay there for a long time because they like being there, I guess. So what is your advice for people maybe looking for a career or a job even you know maybe what's the pitch to to make them try to to join schooled the international say aspect of our business it makes it very interesting you meet a lot of exciting interesting people um uh it is quite uh, differentiated in what tasks you are given uh so no day is the same um uh, I think uh, also that to give uh, authority and you know give a lot of responsibility to to each uh, employee is something many enjoy uh, and um, they feel valued. Uh, they all contribute to to what we are are doing. Uh, so so that is what we are trying to promote and to attract uh, because we need a lot of people uh, and. Uh, the younger generations maybe are not staying as long as they did before. They they want to maybe 
see a few different businesses before they at least decide where to to stay for a longer time. Uh, so we have seen over the years that we we constantly need to attract uh, new people and and to to educate new uh, new people. And if people come to you asking you for career advice, you know, looking at your and and how you have managed to build a great career, what do you typically say to them if they want advice? <laughs> yeah, you heard how I got into this. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if I'm I'm the best to give sort of a clear steering uh, on on how to get here, but. Uh, uh, I, I do think uh, to take the opportunities that comes and, and you know, don't be afraid to do so. Uh, be, uh, be a little bit bold. Uh, take, uh, take some challenges on. Uh, it's tough in the beginning, but uh, over time, I, I think uh, you get the reward. Um, so, yeah, and obviously be yourself. Don't try to be anybody else than who you are. Definitely. Can you also um, say what you think it's uh, it's a great part of being involved in, in the Nord shipping community as well? Because you, you said that, you know, we need collaboration. We need to build new partnerships. There are big uh, issues to solve together. So what do you think are, are the benefits of being involved in, in a Nord shipping event? I, I think basically you said it. Uh, it is so many industry partners uh, coming together at the at the, the conference and uh, all the meetings and events uh, over over that week um I, I think it's a huge benefit for us uh, to uh, to learn from each other we have a massive challenge now with the green shift uh, and the new requirements for emissions coming into to the marine industry i think we all need to to come together uh to learn from each other and to find solutions uh, together uh, it's very difficult to do it uh, by yourself. And I guess it's also the case that you also want to be involved in this green shift as well. I saw you you did a partnership in Denmark, maybe you want to discuss a bit, that you also want to be a part of this, that you don't want to just wait on the outside, you know, waiting for the new technology, etc. But you want to be a part on it as well, trying to form the industry in that direction. Yeah, I think for us, it's very important that we stay relevant. And uh, we, we see a lot of industry players now moving into the, the green uh, um, industry or the renewable uh, industry. Uh, obviously, we also see a, a benefit on, a, say, a broader <laughs> contribution to society to focus more on sustainability uh, going forward. But being an insurance company, we need to understand the risks we are insuring. And uh, with all the new technology coming in now, we, we also need to learn that technology to understand how we can ensure it in, in the best way uh, possible. Uh, so even though we are not the ones sort of uh, building the technology, uh, we, we have to understand it. Very, very cool. Just a, just the last couple of questions, Stola. Uh, what has been your favorite book? Do you have any book you can recommend to the audience? Well, I thought you were going to ask about the album instead of a book. Okay, because yeah, I... <laughs> let's do both if you want. <laughs> um, oh, oh, that was a bit surprising question because I'm I'm not a really big uh, book reader. Uh, I guess uh, the, the last book, yeah, that's not a very uh, philosophical uh, book. I, I think I, that was uh, The Dirt by uh, Motley Crue, uh, they, which is... <laughs> Maybe not a book to recommend, actually, uh, but uh, but it was a fun book if you you like to hear about the eighties uh, rock and roll and uh, the crazy things they did. Um, 
album i, I could uh, ch choose um many um yeah which where to go i, I think uh, anything by led zeppelin is i'm a huge led zeppelin fan uh, being a drummer to listen to john bonham's uh, drumming so go there uh yeah, there, there's a lot of things to explore there and I guess it's not a secret that if people show up to an event like North Shipping or any school events, they can also probably expect you being beating the drums if there's a band to be formed. If I get the chance, I'll do it. Um, and I, I think there will be opportunities also during uh, North Shipping. So uh, stay tuned. Fantastic. Stole, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Christopher. It was really good to, to talk to you. If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called the Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Wohnheim. See you next time.